Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known. You've revealed yourself uh, through the ages, through your word. Uh, we thank you that your word uh, speaks to us today. Uh, and uh, we pray that you would speak to us through as we, as we read the passage today and have it explained. Lord, speak to our, not just to our minds and our heads, but speak to our hearts. Uh, change us uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So our reading today is from uh, John 3, verses 1 to 21. It will be up on the screen. And if you've got a, uh, if you receive one of those blue church Bibles on the way in, there'll be a bookmark that should be, hopefully, in the right spot for you. John 3 from verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Thanks, Steve. I'll just add my welcome uh, to you all. My name's Duncan, a pastor here at Trinity South Coast. It's really great to have 
uh, you among us this morning, particularly if you're visiting. Uh, we love having visitors among us. We love having everyone here among us. So thank you for coming. Um, but it is th- the 3rd of January today. So it's about that time of year where either you're kind of feeling a little optimistic or you're totally sort of depressed about your New Year's resolutions, right? Uh, has anyone managed to get through three days of New Year's resolutions? No, prob- maybe. There's, there might be a few people out there who uh, have uh, stuck at their New Year's resolutions for a couple of days, right? Um, it's hard to find, I think, statistics on this. Some research that I found suggested that uh, only 8% of New Year's resolutions actually um, come through to their fruition. You know, people actually sort of, yikes, you know, what, that's a little bit depressing. But that was American research, okay? So I found some other Australian research that suggested around a 40% success rate. So any chance that we have to sort of, you know, stick it to the Americans, no, 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 I'm sorry, it's just my insecurity, any Americans here. Uh, but perhaps maybe we're just less, less ambitious uh, than the Americans or maybe there's something about us that makes us stick at them more. I don't know. Whatever the case, uh, lots of people are making them, aren't they? You might have, you know, you've probably seen uh, stuff around if you're on social media or something like that. You, you, you'll, you'll hear about people's New Year's resolutions. Lots of people are making them. We keep making them. And sometimes we keep making them against all sort of history and all evidence to the contrary, right? All expectation. In, but we do keep making them. And you can kind of understand why, can't you? Um, the New Year brings with it something of a, the promise of a new start, a fresh beginning, uh, a fresh start, something. And I think it, it, it taps into something within us, doesn't it? This kind of longing we have for a do-over. You know, to, if I could just go back and do it over again, if I can just sort of redo something, if I can... Uh, uh, most resolutions are about, um, uh, from apparently the research says, <laughs> most resolutions are about health. So uh, we, we probably, you know, we, we, we want to have that sort of fresh start with our health. It's a new year. You can get out and, uh, and get to the gym, whatever it is you're wanting to do. But there's something deeper going on here, right? This sort of longing we have for a fresh start, some, some kind of deeper thing at play within us. You see, friends, there are some regrets and some sort of patterns of behaviour or speaking or um, uh, thinking, you know, patterns of thinking, things you think about. There are some things like that that we can kind of change if we're, if we're really sort of self-disciplined. We can put in new systems in place. We can, you know, decide on our resolutions and make a series of small goals along the way. This is my problem with New Year's resolutions. I never make, you know, they, they tell me I need to make small goals along the way. I can't be bothered to do that. That's why I never, you know, anyway, that's, uh, I won't go there. But, you know, we can, there are some, um, uh, issues like that that we can do something about, right? And that's good. But f- of course there are other deeper regrets, right? Other mistakes that we can't, we, we know we just can't wipe clean. Uh, things that we've done and said and thoughts that we can't undo and unsay and unthink. <laughs> uh, that there's no do-over for. There are some things uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and all of us, I think, will sort of resonate with this on some level. Uh, those words that just come out of nowhere, you know, except, friends, that, that those words, they do, they do come out of somewhere. They come out of in here, actually. They don't just appear out of nowhere. They come out of me, some very deep part of me. That addiction that you have, 
uh, to anything, including more subtle things like the approval of other people. Uh, maybe it's th for you, it's that, you know, the black dog over your shoulder, the, the feeling of anxiety or sadness, uh, or being overwhelmed that can kind of pounce upon you at any moment. Could be a million other things, friends. Um, and I don't, wanna, I don't want this morning to downplay the significance of some of the things you can do with New Year's resolutions. They can help, especially if you're a, dis a disciplined person and you've got help around you. But you know, don't you? You know there are things that go deeper than that. Things that just trying harder won't fix, right? Won't change. Uh, in fact, there may well be things that... Here's an interesting thought. There may well be things that, if you fix them, will, will actually, uh, things that, sorry, are made worse by succeeding in your resolutions. Okay, so go with me here. Um, your, perhaps your pride. You're looking down on other people who are less disciplined than you. Perhaps your success in your New Year's resolution will help your body feel a little better, but make your heart a little more ugly. Well, friends, a uh, bit of a heavy way to start this morning, isn't it? But John 3, John 3, the most famous chapter in the Bible, uh, it says something incredible in the light of all this. Against all expectations, against all, your, all that's within you, all your nature, uh, it holds out a promise. It's not just a promise for a new program. Friends, it's not just a promise for a bit of self-improvement. It is a promise for a whole new life. Something so dramatic, so complete and transforming that it's called a new birth. Jesus, friends, does not just offer band-aids to put over the surface of things. He offers something that goes right down to the, to the depths of you. Right down deep, he goes right to the bottom. He goes there because he knows what is within you. He knows it and he knows it fully. We read that last week at the end of, end of chapter 2. We didn't sort of touch on it then if you were here. Um, I should have put it up on the slide this morning, but I uh, didn't get there. But if you have your Bibles open, that'll help. Because if you just look ahead, uh, back sorry, to, to the last couple of verses of chapter 2, uh, we see this, we see this, that Jesus knows you. He knows, he knows you right down to the depths. Uh, he's just done this, if you were here last week, this incredible thing in the temple. You can sort of catch up on that if you want. But then in verse 23 of chapter 2, it says, While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. He knew what was in each person. Do you see what, what's going on there? Jesus, Jesus is worthy of trust. You see it there? People, these people just get a little glimpse of who he is. And we're told they put their faith in him, they trust him. But it doesn't work in reverse. People trust Jesus and that is right. It's the proper response to him, who he is. But Jesus, did you notice that, does not entrust himself to people. I don't think that means he's kind of always going around 
uh, with a, a suspicious sort of uh, mentality. It means he doesn't, he doesn't entrust himself to other people. He doesn't give himself. He doesn't rest in other people and the approval that he can get from them. He doesn't seek after it. Why? Why doesn't he? Because he knows what is in each person. And do you see the implication there? What is within each person is not worthy of your trust, of Jesus' trust. What is within each person can't be trusted. There is something dark and unworthy of trust in every human heart. And it may be, friends, for you that's sort of a ridiculous thing to say, um, possibly a, an offensive thing to say. Uh, if that's you, um, can I ask just two things? Um, uh, perhaps this morning it'll help if you don't think about the claim that this is for all people. Just think about your own life, your own heart. Uh, is this true of you? Could, can you always be trusted to act with selfless love, never out of self-interest or fear or anger? If you're honest, I'd suggest the answer to that is no. But if, if, that is, if, is, if this is a sort of offensive thing for you to hear, can I ask secondly that you do hang in with us this morning? I just, uh, because I want to show you by the end of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus uh, how this leads to the greatest and most wonderful and liberating reality that is good news for all people, good news for people who have something dark within them that they can't trust. Good news for everyone. Well, John 3, um, this incredible interaction between Jesus and this guy called Nicodemus, as you can see that there's an outline, as Steve mentioned, uh, in your handout. And <clears throat> as always, it'll be helpful to have a Bible open in front of you. We'll sort of walk through the story and we'll draw some things together at the end. But you notice there, at the start of chapter 3, there's a really polite approach that um, Nicodemus makes to Jesus. Uh, John 3, verse 1, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, right at the start here, uh, it sort of is a bit of a, a contrast from what, what we've just heard about Jesus. He doesn't trust anyone. Here is a guy that of anyone ought to be trusted. Okay, here is a guy who of anyone ought to be trusted. Uh, he is a Pharisee. He's a serious and he's a serious-minded religious scholar, okay? Uh, he's a member of the ruling council. And what's more, um, he's not like some of the other Pharisees who sort of just reject Jesus out of hand. He, do you notice he, he sort of goes to Jesus? He, he comes to Jesus and doesn't just come to him. He compliments him. He calls him rabbi, which means he's sort of recognising something about Jesus. He, the rabbi just is another word for teacher. He sort of recognises who Jesus is, calls him rabbi, mark of respect. He sees Jesus as something, uh, someone special. He's been doing incredible things. Uh, and he says that for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. You can see this is a really polite approach that Nicodemus makes to Jesus. And I wonder how you would respond if you're in Jesus' shoes. Someone comes and says these things to you. Um, perhaps, you know, I'd respond... Well, thanks, Nicodemus. I, I'm glad you can see that I'm someone special. You know, Let me instruct you in some deep things. Well, I mean, you know that that's not what happens, right? Jesus doesn't sort of... Uh, well, we've already heard, heard it, haven't we? Jesus doesn't entrust himself to anyone. He doesn't pander to 
kind of anyone's um, approval or uh, their desire to butter him up or anything like that. In verse 3, you see there, he, Jesus takes control of this conversation and he gives an un- unwanted answer to an unasked question. You notice that? It's a, such a bizarre conversation. Can you imagine if you're a fly on the wall, Nicodemus goes and says this polite introduction to Jesus, Rabbi, you know, we know you're from God. No one can do this unless God is with him. And then, verse 3, what is, you know, Jesus gives this totally un... Uh, it, it, it's, not, it's not an answer that Nicodemus is looking for. It's not a question that Nicodemus is asking. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, what is going on here? Nicodemus has not said anything about seeing the kingdom of God. Jesus sort of just butts in and says, you know, he doesn't even wait for Nicodemus to go on. It's as if he's saying, you want to figure me out, Nicodemus. You kind of want to assess me. Uh, You're curious about the miracles I do, but I'm not going to play your game. I'm not going to answer the questions you want to ask. I'm going to answer the question that you should be asking. I'm going to answer the question you should... The real question that counts... How can anyone see the kingdom of God? How can anyone see the kingdom of God? How can anyone see the rule of God, the reign of God over his people? And can you see how this would be a a shock to Nicodemus, right? It would have shocked him. If anyone was in God's kingdom, if anyone could see God's kingdom, it was him. If anyone was part of, you know, under God's rule, it was him. He shouldn't need to ask this question. He shouldn't need to worry about whether he's in the kingdom or not. But Jesus' answer is not just about sort of questioning Nicodemus's just assumption that because he's a Pharisee and he's a religious person that he's in the kingdom. It's not just about questioning that. He goes even stranger. You can see that in... in Uh, Verse 3, it's not just uh, no one can see the kingdom of God, but it's unless they are born again. I mean, what a bizarre thing to say, right? It's not sort of an image that you want to think about, being born again. Nicodemus doesn't get it. Verse 4, it's a ridiculous image, right? Somehow for an old man to get back inside his mother's womb and be... I mean, it just doesn't make sense. It's ridiculous. What's going on? But Jesus is emphatic. In verse 5, he doesn't let up. Very truly I say to you, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Friends, it's, it's quite a strange little phrase here and there's lots that's been said about what it might mean. This born of water and the Spirit. Uh, but Jesus, uh, it's a strange phrase for us. Uh, but as, if you notice as you read through, it's exactly in parallel to being born again, right? Jesus says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and spirit. So whatever it means, this being born of water and spirit, it means the same thing as being born again. But see how Jesus expects Nicodemus to understand it. If you flick down to verse 10... Jesus sort of, sort of, you know, he's, he, he thinks Nicodemus ought to know what's going on here. He says, you are Israel's teacher and you don't understand these things. 
He's Israel's teacher. He knows Israel's scriptures, the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, you should understand what I'm talking about here. And that, friends, gives us a bit of a hint to what's going on here about this comment that Jesus makes about water and spirit. There's a link through the Old Testament uh, between water and God's spirit, especially in what's called the prophetic books. The Old Testament prophets, these people who uh, spoke God's word to his people, they looked for, forward to a great day, a great day of God's kingdom. The, uh, the, a great day when God would come and set up his rule forever. And that would be a day when his spirit, his own personal power and presence would be poured out like water on all people and all nations. Um, if you flick to the next slide, this is sort of uh, most clearly seen in a book called Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. It says, this is this great sort of hope that the prophet spoke of. I will, sprinkle you clean, uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all, all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. And if you know Ezekiel, this book, this great prophecy, the very next chapter there's this really incredible scene, Ezekiel 37, this incredible vision that Ezekiel sees of a valley full of dry bones. If you're familiar with this sort of vision Ezekiel has, this valley full of dry bones. And uh, it's this, this vision that when, where God takes these dry bones and he breathes on them and they sort of they come together and they, um, they make flesh and, and, and then God breathes his spirit in them and they become alive, they come to new life. All of that sort of by way of background to what Jesus is saying here, do you see what he's getting at? It's all there in, in um, Israel's scriptures, this great day when God would come and give new life by his spirits, set up his kingdom and pour his blessing out on all nations and open it up for everyone to enter into relationship with him. That is what the world needs. That is what all people need. Jesus says as much, do you see that in verse 6? Flesh gives birth to flesh. He's not talking about um, uh, sort of physical stuff as if what Jesus wants for us is to escape the physical world and sort of have some transcendental sort of experience or something like that. Flesh in the Bible is just a code word for saying humanity in its rebellion against God. People in their rebellion against God. And Jesus says flesh gives birth to flesh. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Jesus says we're born in rebellion against God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We're born rebels and there's nothing we can do about it. Ever since the first humans turned from God, every person since has been born of flesh, born with this inbuilt bias away from God, away from living with him as our king, away from recognising his son, it's the ultimate cause of our problems, our pain, our, and we're hopeless to stop it. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But, of course, you need to keep reading, right? What we can never become 
by our nature. What we can never become by new resolutions. What we can never become by hard work. What we can never become by ourselves. God makes us to be by his grace. God does the impossible. The Spirit gives birth to, to Spirit. Verse 6, the spirit, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The Spirit gives birth to a whole new way of being a human, a whole new orientation instead of living your life with your bias away from God, a whole new heart that desires God, that seeks Him. And did you notice there in verse 8, as you keep reading, it's entirely a gift from God. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's not you who does it. How could you? Flesh gives birth to flesh. It is entirely God's gracious gift to you. Entirely God's gracious gift. Well, friends, how can this happen? What has God done to cause this um, incredible transformation for people from a humanity uh, being part of this group of people who, of, of flesh who, who are in rebellion against God to uh, the, from being dry bones to being given new life to being born again. How can this happen? Well, Jesus hints at it in verse 14. You might have noted that image as we read through about Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness um, that's a story from the Old Testament when the Israelites had sinned against God and he'd, uh, they were faced his judgment, a sort of a plague of deadly snakes. But God provided a way out, a rescue. Uh, Moses was to sort of put a, a bronze snake up on a pole and everyone who looked at the snake would be healed. It wouldn't, wouldn't perish. And they would live. For his people faced with judgment for their sin and rebellion, God provided salvation. And Jesus says that's an image, a faint picture of the great salvation that God is providing in him. Friends, reading through Jesus' words here, we cannot escape the realisation that Jesus believed and taught that every person has something dark within them, something so deep that it cannot be changed, except by something so dramatic something so outside of ourselves, something so completely transforming as a new birth. The second part of this section from verse 16 onwards, you know, the very famous verse 16, um, it's not entirely clear who's talking here. It might be Jesus. Some of your Bibles might have the quotation marks go to the end of this paragraph. Others will finish it at verse 15. It's because it's not entirely clear there's no punctuation in the original. Anyway, it's not a, it's not a big... It, it might be Jesus talking or it might be John the Apostle's sort of, um, sort of writing for us and giving us uh, insight into what Jesus said. It doesn't matter either way. Uh, either way, it's the inspired word of God for us. But it drives home this same point, right, in verse 19, if you flick your eyes down. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Do you see what he's saying there? This light exposes us. It sees right down, deep into us. 
Jesus is the light. We, we heard that a few weeks ago. That's why he knows what is in every person. The light has come into the world, but we prefer the darkness because our deeds are evil. We don't like having that light shone on us. And not only that, in verse 18, in our flesh, as those who sort of shrink from the lights, those who don't believe in him, verse 18, did you notice that? Whoever does not believe, and in our flesh, that's all of us, whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The judgment has already been made. The gavel has fallen. Jesus knows what is within each person. Flesh gives birth to flesh, and we all of us stand condemned already. God, we read in verse 17, God did not send his world into the Son to condemn the world, not because the world didn't deserve condemnation, because it was already condemned. It was already condemned. It already faces the real and terrible judgment of God for its rebellion and wickedness. This is a hard thing for us to hear and probably, I suspect, the most hated of all of Jesus' teachings. But friends, Jesus deals with reality. He doesn't deal with the world that we kind of imagine. He deals with the world as it is. Fallen, broken, flesh, in opposition to God. Well, I said at the start I wanted to show you how all of this is wonderful news. And maybe that seems at this point a bit of a ridiculous thing to say, right? <laughs> Having heard this you know, really confronting message, this confronting word from Jesus himself. Well, friends, here is the wonderful news that we are condemned already. Because if we are condemned already, there is nothing we can do. And that, because of Jesus, is actually the most wonderful news we will ever hear. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. It was already condemned. He did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it through him. But to save it. And how did, I'm working backwards through this second half, you might notice. How does he do that? Well, finally, finally we come to the famous, wonderful verse 16. For God so loved the world. And now you get a sense about which world it is that God so loved, right? This world that is in opposition to him, that hates him, that hates the light, this world that is rebellious against him, that has rejected him and stands condemned already, God so loved this world. And friends, God so loved you as a part of this world. In all your rebellion and selfishness, God so loved you. who stood condemned already, that he gave his only, one and only son. God so loved you, 
He gave Jesus to be lifted up and die on the cross like the snake was lifted up in the wilderness, that whoever looks to him, whoever believes in him, will not, will not perish. Will be those over whom it is said, there is now no condemnation, but who will have eternal life. Friends, this is what God has done to give you new birth. This is new life. You can't enter it or even see it on your own through your resolve, through your plans. But don't you see that is the most wonderful news of all because you could never could. What you can never do on your own, God has done for you and gives as a free gift. He graciously gives you that through the death of his own son. So we just need to finish, friends, with a simple question, really, that this passage leaves us with. Are you born again? Are you born again? We have a lot of trouble, it seems to me, sort of answering that or thinking about that. The phrase comes, uh, it can come to us with a lot of unhelpful associations and background. Certain movements that have sort of taken over this phrase to mean a special type of Christian, a born-again Christian who has had a particular experience. Uh, perhaps, on the other hand, or perhaps you're wary of a kind of emotional and spiritual manipulation that perhaps you've experienced has gone along side that well friends jesus did you notice here says nothing about being whipped up to a particular spiritual experience he says nothing about a special class of christian for jesus the only christian is a born again one the only christian is a born again one and what is it to begin to be born again well we've seen it all the way through isn't it at its heart Friends, it's not doing something special. It's not adapting a new habit. It's not getting yourself into a particular kind of inner state. It's also not coldly assessing and gathering facts until you can make a kind of detached decision that Jesus is probably right for you. Do you notice that? Being born again is not a kind of emotional uh, experience in it at its heart, but nor is it uh, an intellectual decision. Eating, eating, don't get me wrong, it includes your emotions, it includes your whole person, it includes your intellect. But being born again is fundament, fundamentally something God does to you, not something that you do for yourself. And friends, the sign that he is doing that in you, has done that in you, what is it? Well, if we take John 3, is simply this that you recognise and believe in and trust in his Son. That you recognise his Son. Whoever believes in him has this new life, everlasting life. You don't offer something to God, but you see and receive what Jesus offers to you his own life in place of yours, to wipe out your sin and give you a new life, give you his spirit. At the end of the day, the question, are you born again, is the same question as, do you trust Jesus? Do you entrust yourself to him? Do you see what he has done for you and how that shows God's incredible love for you? That's the great working of God's spirit, to open your eyes to Jesus. Perhaps he's doing that 
right now as we speak. Perhaps he did it 50 years ago. It'll look different for every person, friends. Some are gradually over time as they come to know Jesus. Others in an instant, with an intense and kind of memorable way. Others, uh, while they were totally unaware of it. I think I'm in that boat. I've never had a kind of conversion experience, but God gave me new life, as far as I can tell, before I was able to choose it myself. That, and that fits this passage, doesn't it? The wind blows where, wherever it wills, whenever it will, however it will. It's not something that I control by my decisions because I've rationally thought about it. No. It's not something that I can whip up in myself or in others through an emotional experience. No. The wind blows where the wind blows. Whatever the case, friends, Jesus' word is clear. Each of us must be born again to enter into God's kingdom. And friends, many of us can hear the question, are you born again, and answer yes to it. Don't be sort of afraid or ashamed of doing that. If you're trusting Jesus, it doesn't mean you've got it all together. It doesn't mean you're super spiritual. If you know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been born again by his Spirit. That is an incredible thing. I know I ought to be filled with much more wonder than I am. We are dry bones who have been brought to life in Jesus uh, for Christian friends among us, uh, there are times when this is a really sweet and real and powerful reality. Perhaps for you today is that, and that's a wonderful thing. Don't despise that. Uh, there are also times of dryness, though, aren't there, and hardship. It's important to say at this point that this new birth that Jesus gives is not about being a smiley Christian. <laughs> you know? It's not about... Uh, kind of just putting on a grin uh, in the face of all the hardship that is around you. Uh, it is about a new life that is deep down and is truer than all of your sorrow and sin and pain. A new life that is yours through Jesus Christ. It doesn't take away struggle, but it does give an eternal hope, an eternal reality that is fixed and secure and that will sort of work its way back into the present. It will transform often slowly and painfully, but it will work its way back into today. But, friends, uh, this new life is bigger than our, so our sorrow and our struggle uh, that's for Christian friends among us. Oh, don't despise or sort of um, discount or reject those times when this is a sweet thing for you, but don't expect it to always be um, an intense sort of experience either. It is a reality if you are trusting in Jesus. You are born again. One more thing to say, though, friends. Uh, perhaps for you, you know that you are not born again. Uh, you answer that question when, if you're honest about it. You, you, have, you are not, and by that I mean you are not entrusting your life to Jesus. You, are not, you don't have your faith anchored 
in Jesus. Um, if you're able to say no to that, that is a great moment of honesty. Uh, the next question that we'll just leave you with is what is stopping you? There may be some things, maybe some things that sort of you need to work through. Um, but friends, for those of us here today in that position, there will come a point if you hang around Jesus long enough uh, when you realise that instead of you judging him, he start, you realise that he judges you. <laughs> instead of you assessing him, you realise he assesses you, you. He sees right down deep into you. And when you see it's not about always knowing more stuff, uh, knowing all the right stuff, it's not about having it all together. It's about seeing Jesus and entrusting your life to him. Do that today and you will be born again. Friends, can we pray together? Thank you, Father, for uh, this wonderful chapter, this wonderful part of John's Gospel. Thank you that it was written down for us to lead us to faith in Christ so that we might have life in his name. Father, we want to hear Jesus correctly today, that we must be born again to see the kingdom of God. May your spirit work in each of us, Lord, uh, to reveal Jesus to us in a fresh way. For those who are trusting in Christ, may we realise what a wonderful and sweet thing that is. Uh, may we not be discouraged um, when our feelings are not matched with the reality. Uh, but may we know that we are part of your great and wonderful new family in Christ. Those who are wrestling through uh, things this morning, uh, Lord, I pray for us that you will, for, for, for them, that you will uh, enable them to uh, see Jesus clearly. Uh, please take any of the things that I said today and by your spirit, uh, use them for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.